Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of the Jerry Lawler Show here on Podcast One. My name is Sean Reedy. Thanks so much for the download. Feel free to uh, subscribe, like, tweet. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Lawler Show. I am joined, as always, by the king of wrestling, the host of Monday Night Raw, Jerry the King Lawler. How are things going today? Good, Sean. How are you? Everything, everything good in your world? Things are going well, and I'm really excited for this show today because we love our fans, and uh, we love their passion for you and Memphis and, and WWE and everything, and we're going to do a little question and answer from things that we're sent in on Twitter. Well, I, first of all, before we start that, I, w- I got a question for you because, you know, we, you and I are doing this uh, this podcast on a weekly basis. But I don't know, if, have we ever talked about the fact that you do other podcasts as well, that you, you're the host on uh, a podcast with my good friend and my, not only my friend, but I mean, you know, this guy and I have been working together for a hundred years, it seems like. But Randy Hales, good old Randy Hales, you got uh, a podcast with Randy, right? Yeah, I think we talked about that the first week. I do Memphis Memories with Randy Hales every week. We just recorded one uh, that'll be out by the time this one is released, uh, talking about times that he got physically involved in wrestling and uh, <laughs> took some beatings uh, on your side or going against you both in different things of the years. Yeah, you gotta. If anybody has never seen Randy, uh, you you would you would know that he's not the you know he's not a really scary physical specimen he was a little slight in the build and that sort of thing so whenever he did get involved it usually didn't turn out well for randy he was he was much better on the on the outside uh, trying to uh, talk about beatings rather than taking him but um yeah oh so randy now how do how do people find that where did, where's that at? Oh, that is available pretty much wherever podcasts can be found it is uh, memphis memories with randy hales okay now you do another one right and then also with Jerry Jarrett, uh, he he has been under the weather, unfortunately, the past few weeks here. Oh, I think he said he has uh, possibly pneumonia. But yes, that's where it it all got started, actually, with uh, the podcast with him booking Memphis Wrestling with Jerry Jarrett, uh, also available wherever podcasts can be found. I have uh, a lot of Memphis connections. Yes, you do. And of course, Jerry Jarrett and I are partners forever in the, in the Memphis uh, Wrestling Company. And, and I'm sure you guys have a great uh, any number of Memphis wrestling stories to uh to talk about i i see a, a lot of the times that uh you know people will comment on twitter or whatever about something that jerry said about our relationship down through the years and I, he's gonna have to have i'm gonna have to have him on our podcast i'm gonna have to be on his podcast and and we can really do some serious reminiscing the only thing with putting jerry jarrett and i together it would go on forever I mean, it would be like, you know, be like having Jr. and I on the on the same podcast at the same time. We'd never stop. This whole thing really started with me just wanting to understand why Memphis was so great and so much better than any other territory in the 80s. And I think I've I've learned a lot about, you know, his background and, you know, his love of like classic literature. And then you with your artistic background and your love of, uh, you know, comic books and things like that. And I think I've kind of figured out a little bit why Memphis wrestling was such a special thing with your your minds put together. Well, you know what, you, that when you say that, Sean, it's funny. And you're from Chicago, right? You live in the Chicago area your whole life, right? Yes. And for you to say that, it's it's a little bit unusual in the fact that most people think that 
whatever they grew up with, whatever wrestling, whatever part of the country they were in, whatever territory that they grew up watching every week on a weekly basis, that most people think that was the best wrestling during the 80s. You know, but uh, and of course, you know, in our territory, because that's it's the only wrestling anybody saw uh, all throughout Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, mostly in Arkansas. They, they just saw our Memphis TV show. And so that's all they that's all they didn't have anything else to compare with. So it was the best. So I always wondered why somebody like you that lived in another part of the country. That's what, what was the what was the local wrestling that was on? Or I don't know. You're, you're so young that see, you didn't even when you first started wrestling, there was always there was always cable TV, right? Yeah, my beginning was uh, I was in a strict NWA household. My my dad grew up in Florida under Eddie Graham, and uh, Steamboat Flair was my youth and Flair Funk. Okay, but like, what year did you start so really like watching wrestling? Eighty nine. Yeah. Well, see, it was. You're right. It was already divided up between WCW and and WWE by then, uh, and there was no. There was basically not much territory wrestling left except for Tennessee. We were the only ones that hung on by by 1989. We were basically the only territory still in existence. So, um, and that's why I wondered why you, you know, why you looked at Tennessee and always thought that that was the best. You didn't really have a whole lot to compare it with. Well, you know, as things have become more available in recent years online and we can go back and look at all the different territories, it's it's just so clear how ahead the Memphis Territory was of everybody else. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I think the fact that you were running weekly, so every week the show had like this great sense of urgency and uh, you're doing, you know, like a big angle and a big promo every week and brawls and chaos. When I go back and look at Memphis wrestling from like 1979, it's 15, 20 years ahead of its time in terms of what you were doing on the TV show, in terms of action, you know, stars facing each other on TV, interviews, promos, angles. It's just uh, what can I say? Well, but once again, it was it was funny that you mentioned that did like running on a weekly basis back in the territory days everybody all 32 different territories ran on a weekly basis they ran their they ran most of their cities uh, every week I, I just we were in Des Moines Iowa this past week for for Monday night raw and and downtown Bruno he hates when anybody refers to him as Harvey Whippleman but a lot of the WWE fans only know him as Harvey Whippleman but in our territory he was downtown Bruno and he came up to me and he said yeah he said I remember back in the territory days when I was working up here for Bob Geigel Des Moines Iowa was what Des Moines Iowa was our every Sunday night town and even I was shocked I said you guys ran you guys ran a weekly town uh even on sundays and he said yep they ran a different city every night or you know the same cities but uh, seven different cities every night of the week and des moines iowa was there just like memphis was our monday night town des moines iowa was was bob geigel's territory that was their sunday night town so all the territories did that i i look back and you know you say something like you guys were 15 years ahead of everybody else i don't know i mean you know bill watts and down in uh you know, down in Mid-South Wrestling, they were doing a, a lot of the same things we were doing during the territory days. Down in Texas, Devon Eriks. Who really got Bill Watts' territory hopping? Well, you're right about that. And and, and that's what I was going to say was what really made the difference, I think, in the Tennessee Territory and all of, almost all of the rest of the territories was the talent. 
we were just so fortunate, just so lucky. And I still, to this day, don't know how it happened that all of this unbelievable amount of talent suddenly was uh, condensed here in, in the Tennessee territory. I mean, we, I go back and look at some of the cards and, and when you talk about, you talk about Mid-South, we had so much, t uh, the t Mid-South territory with Bill Watts, we had so much talent, unbelievable talent that we couldn't, we couldn't use them all, uh, the way they should have been used. I mean, we had so many guys that should have been top main event caliber wrestlers. And of course, you know, you're only going to have one main event a night. We had so much talent that we sent some unbelievable talent down to Bill Watts. We sent, at one time, we sent Dirty Dutch Mantel. We sent Superstar Bill Dundee. We sent the Rock and Roll Express. We sent Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express, uh, Bobby Eaton and, and, uh, Oh, whoever his partner was at the time, Coco Beware, and and all of this this big group of main event talent. We just said, hey, we're going to send this amount of guys down to you, Bill, because we we don't have a spot to use them all every night. So that's that's the kind of a, a talent that we somehow accumulated at one time in Memphis, and that's what that's what made the territory so great. And 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 then almost all or most of that talent went on to become big WWE superstars. These guys, these guys were just, uh, you know, down here in our territory and we had so many of them and, and they were such, so talented that, uh, you know, we could only use them for a certain length, a certain amount of time or, or either, you know, they, they realized that the, once the, WWE came about and WCW came about that they could be seen on that larger, you know, bigger nationwide scale on cable TV. So, you know, that's when we, we lost a lot of that, uh, that great talent that, that I think made Memphis wrestling what it was. But then like, you know, Randy Hale still, Randy Hale still hung on down there and, 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 um, in Memphis. And once even I and Jerry Jarrett both went to the WWE, Randy still stayed there with Power Pro Wrestling. And then all of a sudden Memphis became like a feeder territory to the WWE. And, and when you, when you go back and look, I'm sure you've talked about name some of the talent that had their first matches or started out in Memphis as almost as nobodies on our Saturday morning TV and then went on, went on to be WWE superstars. I mean, only guys like Hogan, Austin, Rock, Undertaker, Sid. Ultimate Warrior, Sting, Daniel Bryant, R-Truth. Oh, my gosh, the list just goes on and on of, of the guys that uh, went up there and became. I just went, I told you about going to the Cauliflower Alley Club this past year, and there was a guy that uh, they inducted into the uh, Cauliflower Alley uh, Hall of Fame deal, and um, we we started him out as King Konga. Do you remember that guy? Went on to become who? The Barbarian, right? Barbarian, yeah. And and I didn't even I didn't even remember. All of a sudden, I'm sitting out in the audience, and he goes up to accept his award, and he starts talking about his background. And the first word he mentioned was Jerry Lawler and Memphis wrestling. And I thought, God, I didn't even remember that. And <laughs> I mean, you know, he he. Uh, uh, but I mean, of course, it was his life. It was his. It was the main thing that happened to him that sent him on the road to becoming the big WWE star that he became. And and that was it was. That way with those, so many guys that they just you know they came through memphis or they started in memphis but that was memphis uh, wrestling was a big part of their their lives stick around we've got more to come on the jerry lawler show
Hey, Jordan here. I know a lot of you create your own podcasts, and a lot of you already have one like me. I obviously love what I do. It's taken a lot of hard work to get to this point of success. You shouldn't have to pay fees for platform hosting, distribution, analytics, or fees to create a podcast. You need to be able to focus on producing the best show possible. Now, Podcast One, that's the network I'm on, they have Launchpad Digital Media, or Launchpad DM for short. So it's free, includes unlimited hosting, full control of distribution. You have access to a full dashboard with analytics. Again, totally free. You own everything, by the way. You own your content, you own your subscribers, no tricky stuff there. And you get your own show page on launchpaddm.com for people to listen to and subscribe to your show. It's the only hosting platform brought to you by the leading network, Podcast One. Podcast One will promote the site, drive people to discover your podcast. And if your show grows, you could even be invited to join Podcast One's all-star roster, which includes people like Adam Carolla, Caitlin Bristow, Shaq, Lady Gang, and of course me, Jordan Harbinger, I'm there too. You also get access to their production and sales support. So with all this completely free, don't use other hosting platforms. Why would you need to? Learn more or sign up now at launchpaddm.com. And don't forget to check out the Jordan Harbinger Show. All hail the king. It's the Jerry Lawler Show. You had quite the eventful uh, and lengthy Monday night uh, this past Monday. Wow, did we ever. Before that, we had Sunday night. We had the uh, TLC pay-per-view in Minneapolis. So I got ready to head up to Minneapolis on Sunday morning. I I guess I didn't really think about it because the week before, I had done a WWE personal appearance going through Minneapolis in Des Moines, in Des Moines, Iowa. And I think we may have talked about that where I slipped on the ice. So I'd done that the week before in Des Moines and I think it was like 50, 55 degrees or something like that. So I didn't even, I don't know, didn't even think anything about it. It was like 60 degrees in Memphis Sunday morning. And I went to the airport heading up to Minneapolis and I get there and I'm checking in. And my friend Gary there said, uh, are you going to Minneapolis dressed like that? And I looked down, I just had, you know, I just had on like a, I think a Cleveland Browns uh, sweatshirt on or something. And I said, yeah, why? He said, well, I just looked and he said, it's zero degrees right now this morning. And it's minus 17, 17 below wind chill factor. And I just went, Ooh, wow. I didn't even bring a coat. So anyway, that was, that was the start of the day. Sure enough, get to, get to Minneapolis. It was unbearable. I must have said 50, 20 times up there to people. How do you people live here? How can you, how can you live in this place? I mean, you know, I mean, sure. Down like here in Memphis this morning, it was like 33 degrees or something like that little frost. This is, this is no lie. 33 degrees here in Memphis this morning. I think it got down to actually maybe 28 overnight. So there were little, some frost patchy places. And I used to live on a street named Walnut Grove Road, which is just a couple blocks over from where I live now. It's a long street that comes from, from Germantown all the way into downtown Memphis. And it's a pretty heavily traveled street. And so apparently there's some little icy spots this morning around Memphis, but it's 33 degrees now. And as I was coming upstairs to start this uh, podcast, uh, my fiance, Lauren said, Oh my gosh, I just heard on the news. There's a 24 car pileup on Walnut Grove road, 24 cars and one, <laughs> one accident over there. It's got to have been nothing more than a little slick spot here. I mean, you know, we just, we, the people down in the South, I mean, they, they cannot handle these crazy temperatures, but those people up there, it was zero. It was minus 17 degrees in a windshield factor. And they poured out. They came out to the matches like crazy. Had a huge crowd in Minneapolis. And, and I'm just thinking, how do you people, how do you people go outside in this? 
but I guess they're just used to it, you know. At least the next pay-per-view is in Houston. Yeah, that's that's going to be one good thing. So anyway, we did we did um, we did the TLC match uh, or the TLC show in Minneapolis Sunday night. Wow, that was you know we had spent most of our time switching in and out back and forth from the announce table uh, with you know with Michael Cole and Corey Graves and the three of us, me and Joe and Vic. You know we were like right over on the sidelines while they did two matches. Then they'd have to rush us in during a. 30 second break and put us in our chairs and get us mic'd up and that sort of stuff. And then we'd do two matches and then same thing, switch out again. So I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty good pay-per-view. I don't know how, how the fans reacted to it. When I, when I look back on it, it was like, you know, it was not a, all, there were a lot of stars that were kind of left off that pay-per-view. And I guess that was probably for a reason. I think that, I think the, the philosophy has always been about that particular pay-per-view that, and, and then the other thing was they didn't even announce. It was a little while before they even announced all the matches that were going to be on the pay-per-view. But I think the philosophy of the tables, ladders, and chairs is the fact that it's tables, ladders, and chairs matches. That is what draws. That is what the people are interested in. It's almost like it's not, it's not as, important as who's in the match it's just it's just that it's a tables ladders and chairs match and you know you're going to get to see some crazy stuff happening with all of those different ideas and all those different things involved in the matches so um you know it it was cool uh i i enjoyed doing the pay-per-view we you know it's it's one of those things when you get caught up in doing it and calling it and, and everything happening so fast, you don't even get a chance to think about, was that a good match? How was that match? I mean, I, I know that in the in the uh, women's match, the women's tag match, the Kabuki uh, Warriors, the Kyrie Sane got it's one of those things where I'm watching the match and I'm sitting there right at ringside and I didn't even realize or see how she got hurt so to speak or they thought she might have been concussed i don't think she actually was but you know she got pretty good hit on the head and 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 was a little woozy afterwards but i didn't see exactly how it happened or what happened but you know that that's what happens you get so caught up in trying to talk about what we're seeing on the monitors as to what all is going on in the in the match and everything it's so it's really kind of hard to keep up with everything that was going on you can't really say at the end was that a good match or was that not so hot? It just, you know, you just, that's something that the fans sit at home have to decide or, or, or whatever. But to me, you know, every match uh, with all of the tables and the ladders and the chairs and all that stuff, every, every match seemed pretty exciting. Yeah, I thought it was a really good show. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And then we had two Raws on Monday, so at least you get a week off next week. But uh, that must have been a long night. That was a long night. We had 20 matches. So the fans that came to the show that night in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Monday night, got to see 20 matches. They had one dark match, and then the two Raws consisted of 19 total matches. And you're right, it was a long night. We started, um, and I'll bet a lot of people didn't, it, was a, it would be hard to realize it. Ordinarily, that was we were on Central Standard Time. So Central Time, the show would have started live on the air at 7 o'clock. But instead, we started live in the arena at six o'clock. And so we started doing the show. And in order to be able to get all of these, both of these shows done in one night, we did the shows without commercial breaks, which made it even tougher on the announcers, because a lot of times you depend on those commercial breaks to kind of Oh, get a second win and, 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 you know, maybe clear your throat or whatever and, and just let your voice take a little break, uh, during the two minute commercial breaks. But we had no commercial breaks. We just went right on through the entire five hours of shows 
with no breaks. So that's uh, so it, when when the shows came on live for the fans to watch at seven o'clock, it would it really started an hour before that, and so we were doing we were doing what you would call live to tape or taped alive, I guess, maybe, uh, all, all night long throughout that, throughout that first show. So when we, when we finished with the first show at like, I guess what, eight o'clock, no, at nine o'clock, it was still going, uh, on the air for another hour. Uh, you know, because that was the part we had already taped. And then while that was still airing, uh, live on, <laughs> it's hard to say live, while that was still airing on the USA Network, as if it were live, we had already started another hour of the following week's show, the Christmas show. And it was, oh, it was everything was so rushed. It was so crazy. It was, as soon as the, as soon as the, this week's show was over, uh, here comes all the crew. And it, it was just miraculous the way they do this. I mean, within, I'd say a span of two minutes, they we finished the one show and within two minutes they had this entire Christmas scene and everything set up for to start the Christmas show. I mean, I don't know how many Christmas trees and wrap packages and all of this sort of stuff that they brought out onto the stage area for the you know, for the set for the Christmas show theme show. Um but man, it just all happened within an instant. Vic and, and Samoa Joe and I got up and changed our outfits, you know, changed our shirt. I was looking around, I couldn't find mine. I I, I Go, you'll have to see it. I wore a special Christmas, uh, little, little Christmassy shirt or outfit there for the second show. But, um, but we had we had a lot of fun. The, the Christmas show was a lot of fun because we, you know, we were just able to throw in so many. Uh, at least I had a ton of Christmas one-liners and Christmas jokes and that sort of thing. Uh, just just little things that we kind of added to the commentary. Like I remember one time Charlotte Flair. Uh, Charlotte Flair has a match with she's from nxt it seems like her name starts with a c as well i can't even remember it now but it was like one of the first times i had actually seen her wrestle in person and she to me was very impressive i mean i, I know everybody's seen her on nxt chelsea green chelsea green yeah i mean i'm sure she's been seen, seen a lot but it was one of the first times i had actually seen her in a match and she wrestles Shark Flair in the on the Christmas show and it was a really good match and the, and the girl was really impressive I thought and she you know she was about to, Charlotte's usually bigger than most of the other women and what I was trying to get at was we just used some little uh, Christmas terms because one time Chelsea grabbed Charlotte by the back of her head and rammed her uh, face first into the turnbuckle and I just had little lines like. Oh, that's not Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Charlotte. That's the turnbuckle. So, you know, we just, everything, everything had a Christmas feel to it, uh, throughout the show and had some good little, good little uh, one-liners in there. That was a lot of fun. So, and, and yeah, I can't do a spoiler, but, uh, something happens with Lana and Lashley and Rusev on that show that is going to be a big deal and it's going to make the show after Christmas. The biggest deal ever. So I don't. I want. I want to tell you, but you just got to watch what happens on the Christmas show. That's going to set up the show after Christmas. That's going to be really awesome. And as you know, we talked about this. It's so funny in the live arena at Des Moines there, and also at um, in Minneapolis at the pay per view. The, the response from the crowd is great to the Lana and, and uh, Lashley and Rusev uh, storyline. But on it's so crazy, like online, on Twitter and everything, people seem to hate it. 
I mean, it's like they get it gets like no respect. But in the in the in the crowd, the crowd, the live events, the people seem to love it. So I, I don't get I don't get that response. I mean, I, I think it's really entertaining. I really do. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because it there is a, a very negative response online that you see, but in the arena, the, there's very loud Rusev Day chants, and Lana's getting a lot of heat, and seems like a hot issue. I know, and I I like it because it's you know, hey, come on, everybody's not going to like every everything, you know. It's it's something that they're trying to do. We always talked about this, uh, how the fact is, you know. In wrestling, people who would get tired of just two guys or two women going out there and having uh, a wrestling match, you're going to put the, you're going to put together 19 wrestling matches on one night for fans to watch. If there's not something in, about those matches to get the fans personally invested, uh, and what that's what we call a personal issue. If there's not some sort of personal issue behind these matches, then nobody cares because everybody in the, if you really watch a match, everybody does the same stuff. You know, there's the dives off the top rope. There's the dives over the top rope, through the top ropes, guys thrown into turnbuckles, guys thrown out of the ring. It's all the same stuff every single match. What makes it different is the storyline of the match, the personal issue that's involved in the match. And, um, you know, the, the this thing with Lana and Rusev and Lashley is a personal issue. I don't know why, but it's, it's, it's funny. You and I have talked about this before the show about – Twitter maybe not being the um, how did you say it? It's not real life. Yeah, it's you're right. It's just not real life. What you see and hear on Twitter. I love Twitter. I mean, I really do. I tell people all the time. Uh, I, I that's my, it's my favorite form of social media. And then, but I think I what I love about Twitter is the fact that I'm a news guy. I love you know I'll I'll sit and watch. Fox News or CNN or I watch news shows almost all the time. I just, you know, I like I like news stuff. And the thing I love about Twitter is, you you know, you subscribe to Fox News or you subscribe to CNN or you subscribe to your local news stations here in Memphis. I subscribe to all the three local stations in Memphis. I subscribe to the Cleveland news station. Uh, you know, I follow the Cleveland Browns. I follow the Cleveland Indians. And I get you get news from all of those places instantly on Twitter. It's not something that you got to wait for the news to come on on TV. Man, that stuff comes up instantly. Anything that happens comes up instantly on Twitter. That's why I, that's what I love about Twitter. I'm not, you know, I, I don't use it. I don't, and I'm not crazy about people that like to use it as a, as a forum, like, like the, like a lot of the wrestling fans like to go on there and just use it to criticize or knock something that they see on the show, uh, you know, so, but that, but that, that's fact of life. A lot of people do that. And that, like you say, is why we need, or I need to stop and realize that Twitter is not real life. It really is not. However, I think uh, a major development on the show was somewhat spurred by some Twitter activity with uh, Seth Rollins becoming a bad guy. I think that kind of originated with people getting mad at him on Twitter. Well, let me say this. I, I, I don't, I'm a firm believer that a lot of the WWE creative people, uh, feel like Twitter is real life. And, and I know, I know people can, people can lose their, we've seen this, people can lose their job over a tweet, uh, and be, it can affect people's careers over 
tweets. And so that's why, you know, it's um, it is and it isn't real life. But some of the things that that are that are put on there uh, have to be and are taken uh, seriously. I mean, now WWE has I don't know how long this has happened, but I know it did, they didn't used to have. But I mean, they have an entire social media department now. You know, they have several people that that's their job is just monitoring social media and putting out social media uh, posts and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it's funny, the stuff that people tweet, everybody does have that voice now. And, and that the people in the social media department, they they keep track of everything that's that's tweeted out there. And then they will in turn go back and and give feedback to the to the creative staff, to the to all, all of the people, I mean, probably all the way up to the board of directors. So, uh, yeah, people, people have that voice and they can, they can be heard now. It's, it's one of those things where to me, at least, it seems like the Twitter, the, the, the Twitter world or whatever, Twitter universe is more critical than it is helpful is not the right word than, it, you know, than it is like putting somebody over. I think more people are out there and will take the time to actually tweet something that is negative rather than tweet something that is positive. That's what I meant to say. They're, they're, they seem more the, – the Twitter universe seems more critical than, the, than they are positive. You're listening to The Jerry Lawler Show. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to The Jerry Lawler Show. We're supposed to be answering questions from uh, some people that have, that have tweeted us. This is this is going to be good. Now, all of these tweet questions that we've gotten, uh, I hope they're not all negative like, like we've been talking about. No, great stuff here. Great stuff from our fans. We love our fans. Uh, I, I like a lot of these questions, and I'm looking forward to hearing the answers. So why don't we start off with your biggest super fan? Our friend Paniti in Thailand, <laughs> who uh, submitted a question here. She said, what did it feel like when you wrestled your first match? Oh, wow. Man, I, I, did, I really had so many mixed emotions about that because it, it, it was something that, I, I, gosh, she had such a backstory to this. But most people, I think, anybody that knows anything about me knows my backstory. You know, I started out just as a wrestling fan, draw, drew some pictures of some wrestlers, sent them into the TV station. The great Lance Russell liked my artwork. He called me up on the phone, invited me over to Channel 5 Wrestling, where I got to meet Jackie Fargo, who was the big star. He was like The Rock or he was like John Cena at the time in Memphis wrestling. He was a big star. He, Jackie liked my re, liked my artwork, liked me, and he actually uh, gave me a break by uh, hiring me to do artwork for him, at, not only at his club, but then we started a, a little miniature sign company. And one thing led to another, and I got to be working down by his club and hanging out around Jackie, and I, I got to see the, the lifestyle of what the wrestlers was, was, was like, and I just that, that's what I just kind of fell in love with. And so I didn't, I could not get up the nerve to really ask Jackie and to tell him that I wanted to try to wrestle because I thought that, you know, that would be a, like an insult. Here's just me and nobody asking, uh, you know, a big star like Jackie Fargo that I wanted to be in his business. Um, and so 
I met this guy that just came along that he was from St. Louis, I believe. His name was Jerry Vickers. He came to town to to try to get booked himself. And I met this guy one day and, and he was talking about the fact that he came down and he was going to go and wrestle in this little, just a real little small independent promotion over in West Memphis, Arkansas, which is a town on the other side of Mississippi River. It's a very minute town compared to Memphis at the time. Uh, and they had a little independent show at a little small rundown uh, movie theater and where they had taken some of the seats out of the front row down by the screen and put a wrestling ring down there and the place would hold at the most maybe 250 people something like that and every Saturday night they would have these bunch of young guys that were just wanting to you know wanted they like a typical small time independent show back then it was known as outlaw wrestling because it was something that the the real promoters looked down on and would frown on they didn't you know they thought that was stealing some of their fans away from coming to their big real matches or whatever, you know, so and probably that's about the same way independent wrestling has looked on today in a lot of places. But anyway, this guy told me that they were going to have a lot these live matches on Saturday over in West Memphis, which I didn't even know about. And I told him, I said, man, I would really like to, uh, I, I, you know, I work for Jackie Fargo, but I just don't have the nerve to ask him to, to tell him that I would really like to try wrestling. I'm probably too small and everything. And, and I'm sure he would just laugh at me, but, uh, this guy, Jerry Vickers, who needed money, obviously, was come, came all the way down here, drove down from St. Louis, no job and everything. So he saw the opportunity to sell me a pair of wrestling boots and some trunks, or some wrestling tights, just to make money for himself. You know, I'm sure he wasn't really that interested in helping me get in the business, but he said, he said, here, you know, you, you can't even think about being in the wrestling business without some boots or tights or whatever. So I got some, I'll sell you. So I think for a total of about 65 bucks back then, which was a lot of money in 1970, uh, for 65 bucks, I bought a pair of wrestling boots and some trunks from this guy named Jerry Vickers. And he said, here's what we'll do. We'll go over to um, West Memphis, Arkansas. There's a promoter named Aubrey Griffith, who's an ex. I mean, he used to wrestle in the Memphis territory and he's running these shows over there. And maybe maybe he'll let you wrestle over there with me. You know, that's how my first match came about. I went over with Jerry Vickers. I met Aubrey Griffith, sort of lied my way. And he told me, don't don't admit that you've never wrestle it before you know tell if he asked tell him that he wrestled down in florida or something like that but that you know that you want to come over and wrestle one thing led to another i sort of lied my way in to get on the card and aubrey griffith told me and jerry vickers he said all right i'm gonna tell you what i'm gonna let you guys wrestle this week on the show against my top tag team the executioners who were like a, they were like a little they weren't really small they're kind of big guys but you know they were just real inexperienced real green but they had outfits that looked like the interns who were the main event guys over in Memphis and on our Saturday morning TV. They had these all white outfits and everything. So they were, they were a rip off of the interns. So we went over there and there, you know, I, I'll never forget going down. I mean, I thought I was in like Madison square garden when I'm walking in this little rundown abandoned movie theater, I look up over the ring and instead of their ring light, there was a big galvanized wash tub, this big old, uh, this big galvanized steel wash tub hanging down with about three 250 watt light bulbs in it inside this thing. And that was their ring light over the ring. Right. And uh, and when everybody dressed back behind the movie screen, it was so funny. 
we were we we were I, I didn't realize this before but if you're ever in the back of a movie screen you know when you're out front you're watching the, of course all you see is the white screen and then the movie comes on if you're in the back side and you're looking out through the screen you can actually see through the screen because it's got tons of little holes in it uh, I didn't I didn't I didn't know that but uh, and I'm I'm thinking when I'm starting to get dressed back there I said now, can those people see us back here when we're taking our clothes off to put you know put on the wrestling tights but anyway we all dressed behind the screen and I went out and I, I just, all I wanted to do was all of the things that I had seen uh, the wrestlers do on the Monday night matches when me and my dad were fans and just going down and watching the matches. And one of the main things that, that impressed me was this wrestler named Young Anaya. He was a Mexican wrestler and he, he was in, in uh, a match one time and, and it was against the interns. And these interns grabbed this young kid and they grabbed him by the back of his head and the seat of his tights and they ran him across the ring and they just threw him, sail him out. And it was just like, it was the bump that you see Rey Mysterio take where he flies out of the ring and he doesn't touch the rope or anything and he boom and he goes down and lands almost face first onto the um, you know onto the floor I think it's, you'll see it coming up this week Ray does that bump coming up in the, one of the matches this week and I was always impressed by, by that by how he would fly out there and land on the floor without you know without touching the ropes to break his fall or anything so that was in my mind that was the first thing I wanted to try so we were in the the match started the little clinker bell rang and and we had there's probably 40 or 50 people in the in the crowd out there watching the bell rang and I I think I may have started or I think Jerry Vicker started and then I came in second and as soon as I got in I told this guy the executioner I said I said scram me by the head and throw me out throw me out onto the floor so he grabbed me and we run across the ring and I'm thinking just like the Rey Mysterio, Young and Nia bump and man, I sailed through the ropes and you know, didn't even try to, didn't even have my hands out to try to break my fall or anything and I go flying through and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this must look great. This must look awesome. And uh, all of a sudden, the next thing I can remember is I opened my eyes and I'm sitting in a chair. I'm back behind the movie screen again. And Jerry Vickers is fanning me with a towel. And I'm like just now coming to. Uh, I've been unconscious. And I said, what happened? I said, all I remember is a big jumping through the sailing through the ropes. And I remember hearing a big loud bang. And he said, yeah, that was your freaking head hitting the concrete floor. And so anyway, I took the one bump. My head hit the concrete floor and I was knocked out and they drug me back to the dressing room and I didn't wake up until, you know, until the, the match was, uh, I woke up back in the dressing room after the match was over. So that was, that was what it felt like my first match. But I believe it or not with that very, um, I don't know, <laughs> not very impressive first start. I fell in love with it. Uh, it was, and, and it was something that I, I remember after that, Jackie Fargo found out that I was over there having matches in West Memphis, Arkansas the, the, on the second week or something. First of all, he threatened to come over there and beat us all up and we were all scared to death. But then, then he finally came to me and he said, look, kid, if I get you a match with Nick Goulas for the real Memphis wrestling, will you quit going over there and messing with all that outlaw wrestling? And I I said, oh, my gosh, yes, sir. So sure enough, the following week, he booked me on Memphis TV uh, to get beat up by the real interns. And it was uh, not, the, not the executioners, but the real interns. And, of course, they beat the crap out of me. And, and uh, But it was just – that was it. I just fell in love with it. It was uh, – so I – 
I can't tell you exactly all the thoughts that went through my head on the first match, but that's what happened in my first match, Benini. Part of the fun of this is just the completely random questions that we get that, uh, you know, some some of them will be big like the last one. Or we might get a question like from Jeff Townsend here at Jeff Finetown on Twitter. He says, Jerry, will the fans ever, even if just for a short time, see the goatee again? Oh, <laughs> let's see. I've thought about I've really thought about doing this sometime and I, I it'll take a little bit of work because the goatee still exists in a sense. The goatee, if you go back and look at the goatee that I was wearing in the movie Man on the Moon, when we went back and recreated the match between me and Andy Kaufman, I still have that goatee. It was a, it was a goatee that they made for me that they stuck on my chin with spirit gum, but it looked, I mean, it was so great. It looked just like uh, you know, after the makeup lady was through with me, I looked in and I go, dang, that's awesome. Because I, I really quit wearing, quit doing the goatee, not for any reason other than the fact that it just seemed like uh, so much work. I always, the only reason I started the goatee, and, and I've had people over the years say, oh, you grew that goatee because it looked like a little crown. You know, it looked like it had three, it looked like a, a crown, so to speak. The only real reason that I grew the goatee was to try to hide my double chin. <laughs> That's the truth. And really? the, the goat, the, absolutely, absolutely. That was the only reason. And the goatee became so uh, much, and I didn't, you know, I didn't even think about, uh, you know, things becoming trademarks or something that you would be known for. Honestly, the goatee was just to try to hide the double chin. And every day it was so much trouble to try to keep it straight. You know, I'd shave off one side a little bit, be shaving, and I'll go, oh, gosh, wait a minute, that does not even with the other side. And then I'd go and shave off the other side a little bit. And then I'd, next thing you know, it's almost down to nothing. So it was just it was just tough to keep it uh, going. And then after a while, I just said, what the heck? Uh, the double chin's going to have to show. And I just I just shaved the thing off because it was just it was I would literally spend literally at least 30 minutes a day just fooling with the freaking goatee. And uh, and now, of course, if I grew the goatee back, it would probably be all gray. So I don't want to I don't want to mess with doing that anymore. Um that's the thing that I, it drives me crazy. Gray hair. I hate gray hair. I was just, I was talking with Matt Hardy just this past, uh, Monday and Matt, it was, I, I told Matt just, in, uh, just Monday. I said, you know, Matt, when you came out a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember what town he came out in where he sort of made his re-debut. They said fans hadn't seen him. I said, Matt, that was one of the biggest pops I've heard anybody get since I've been back doing the commentating. And he said, well, thank you. And, and it was, I mean, you know, because here's a guy that the, in the business, I say, you know, he's over the people knowing the people love him. And, and he hadn't been around for a while. And of course, absence makes the heart grow fonder or whatever. But, but, um, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a transitional situation right now where a lot of the wrestlers, uh, with all the NXT guys and all of this kind of stuff, you know, they're pushing a lot of guys that I don't know the best way to say it is that, you know, they haven't been, they haven't been exposed yet to the, uh, to the fans for, for a long period of time. So it's like, you know, it takes a while for people to get, get to know somebody for the wrestlers to get over and everything. And we got to, there, there seems like at this point in time, they're pushing a lot of guys that are, that are, it's going to take them a little while to get over, you know, like Umberto and, 
oh gosh, Andrade and Zelina and these people, you know, they're not, they haven't been established yet as well as they're going to be, but it takes a little while to get them established. But so all of a sudden when Matt Hardy comes out uh, that the people hadn't seen, but they do, you know, they know that Matt's a star and it was a big, big pop for Matt. And then I'm sitting there looking at him and I probably shouldn't say this on this thing because I didn't say it to Matt and I've, but I started to, but anyway, uh, and, and a lot of people just don't think anything about this, but I mean, you know, here's Matt and I think of, I, you know, I think of Matt and Jeff as, I don't know, being the same as when I, when I first started, saw him when they started and everything, but all of a sudden I'm looking at Matt money and he's got this little, got this little beard going, which is kind of cool and everything. If you know, if that's what you like, but about half of his beard is like gray, it's graying, right? And and I I don't know, and this is probably just me, but I mean you know that's just one of the things that when I when I see somebody with gray hair, I just my impression of them is that oh they're getting older, getting that gray hair, you know, getting old, and and that's one of the reasons that I would not bring the goatee back because uh, you know it would probably be all gray and I wouldn't want that. But when I was I was thinking that I could bring back the goatee that I wore in the man on the moon movie because it's sitting in it's at my club down on Beale street, King Jerry Lawler's hall of fame bar and grill, uh, right on Beale street. It's in one of the, the like trophy cases down there. It's on display. You can go by and see the, the beard that was, I wore in the movie. Right. And all I would have to do is take that thing out at the makeup people, put a little spirit gum on there. And I could just, I could just show up any given Monday night with the, uh, with the beard. And it wouldn't even take, you know, I wouldn't have to take the weeks and weeks to grow the thing out or keep it trimmed up or whatever. I could just use the uh, prosthesis beard on one of the shows. I may, so I may do that on a on a throwback week or something like that. So the answer is, it is possible. It is, it is possible. And let me just say this, Matt, if you're listening or anybody, uh, uh, you know, I love Matt Hardy and I, and I think the fans love Matt Hardy and I, w- I hope we get to see him more. Do your beard the way you want to do it. That's everything. It's fine with everybody. At TK Vach2, uh, wanted to know any memories of Gene Okerlund or Gorilla Monsoon from the old days? Yeah, I saw that question. Um, and it was sort of like, who did I like better or who was nicer or something like that of the two? I did, of course, get to work with, work with uh, both of those guys. When I first, the very first appearance that I made on a, on a WWE TV show was, um, Vince McMahon was there. Bobby Heenan brought me out, uh, to introduce me to the WWE universe. Hillbilly Jim was on this show and, and, uh, of course, Gorilla Monsoon. And, and at that time, Gorilla, I believe Gorilla and Bobby were, you know, partners in, in, on commentary and everything. And I don't, I, I'm trying to think, I don't think I ever got to actually do commentary with Gorilla. I did do some with, with Bobby Heenan, uh, a couple of times. Uh, but I don't really, I think I did it with Bobby and, and maybe Vince, but I don't really think I got to do it with Gorilla. Gorilla was a, a cool guy. And the fact that, um, man, he, you know, he was old school. You talk about, uh, anything you wanted to know about the old WW all the way back to WWWF. Uh, that was Gorilla Monsoon. He, he was, he was the guy that that company was built on the back of. And then he went, uh, I mean, t- still to this day for the Gorilla position. Yeah. 
I mean, you see it every single day when you walk into a WWE show. There's a sign pointing which way, left or right, to the gorilla position. And that's named after Gorilla Monsoon because after his wrestling days, he was the guy that sat right there. He was the guy that controlled the tempo of the show, getting guys out to the ring or back from the ring and timing out the matches and all this sort of stuff. So he was a great, gosh, I don't even know. I mean, he was a really important piece of the WWE for a long, long time. I didn't ever get to, I don't know, get close to Gorilla. And and a lot of people, if you remember, one of the things that really changed uh, Gorilla Monsoon was when his son Joey got killed in a car accident up there. Gorilla was just not the same as as, as happens to anybody. You know, I, I don't think I'm the same after losing his, you know, after losing Brian, uh, Jr. after losing his wife, Jan. It's just something that affects people's, it, you can't help it, it's human nature. It affects your personality. And so, um, you know, Gorilla was just, he was just not the same, but always, always a wonderful guy. But now me, Gene Okerlund, he, he was a different, he was, he, me, Gene was just a cool guy. He was funny as he could be. He and I and JR did shows together. Me, Gene was a, he was a tr- true party animal. And I mean, you, I know you, most people wouldn't think that by seeing Gene uh, just on the TV show or something like that. But man, after the shows, you know, Gene would love to, um, you know, he'd let his hair down and, and celebrate. And and uh, that was that was Gene's idea of a good time. He would get together with the guys and, or the fans after the show and have a drink or two. And he was just, uh, man, always had a million stories. God, he was he was such a part of uh, the you know started with the with the AWA and then the WWE and then WCW and then back with back with WWE. Me, Gene did it all. I mean, he really did it all. And and I don't know if there was anybody at what he did that was ever as good as me, Gene Okerlund. And just a great guy. I loved him. God, you know, any any time where there was any kind of a vent, you'd want you'd want to you'd want to sit with me, Gene. You know, you'd want to be around him he was just a, that cool of a guy yeah there were such distinctive parts of that 80s presentation along with like jesse ventura and bobby heenan uh legends uh clint corbett this is kind of an interesting one talking about your artistic side if you could reanimate an entire disney classic which would you choose oh. Reanimate a Disney classic. I've never been asked that kind of a question, and I, that's a, I'd have to think about that. I mean, I'm a great Disney fan. I mean, I, I was just looking the other day, going in my uh, in my art studio or library or whatever reference books or whatever. I I must have every kind of Disney book that's ever been been put out. I mean, I've all their animation stuff. as a big fan of and and. Uh, I mean, some of the classics, you know, the old ones, I was just just watching. That was one of the first things I watched when we got uh, the Disney Channel uh, or Disney Plus or whatever a couple weeks ago. First thing I watched was the movie Pinocchio, because that to me and uh, looking at those painted backgrounds, stuff that people just take for granted when they watch movies. And especially nowadays, nobody takes nobody because everything's done with computers and all of that thing. It's not, you know, there's really not a lot of artistic ability that's involved in that kind of stuff anymore. But back in the day, you can, you look at, um, go back and look at Pinocchio, for instance, you go back and look at the movie Pinocchio. And when you're watching it, just realize that all of those backgrounds that you see in every one of those scenes is a painting. I mean, it's an actual oil painting that uh, that the artist would sit and do all of these beautiful paintings. And then, of course, the figures, the animation, the characters all moved around those static 
background paintings. And uh, that, that kind of stuff was just amazing to me. But I then, you know, as the years went on, I kind of, I kind of became less of a fan because the animation wasn't as good anymore. And then, gosh, there's got to be a few of them that come to mind that, uh, that I've just watched and I would go, Oh, that animation is just not, it's, you know, it's so, it, it was, it's so computerized that it's to me not as visually striking as something like the, like the old classics. So I don't know, almost, almost any new Disney movie, I would, rather take one of those and go back and and do the and of course that nobody does that anymore but i would rather go back and do the the old school the old classic animation on uh like like pinocchio or some of those old classics I'm just i'm trying to think of one that would come to mind but i can't think of one right now but anything probably anything after the after the 60s or 70s or something like that Here's a timely one. At Brad 35 Light asks, what are Jerry's memories working with CM Punk and WWE? Punk seems to be a fan of old school wrestling and even mentioned to Jerry, Jerry's Memphis Territory days of using fireballs when they were uh, working together on the Raw broadcast team. Yeah, uh, he did. You're right. He did. Uh, well, that's, that's true. You know, uh, Punk and I had some things in common with, you know, he always talked about being, what was he, straight, straight edge, right? And, and that, and that sort of thing. And, and probably, um, you know, I used to tell him, man, I was, I was straight edge before you were born. And it was like, you know, but that was something we had in common. Neither one of us had ever done any drugs. Neither one of us had ever drank. Neither one of us had ever smoked. Punk and I, you know, it's, it's hard. We were never like what you would call close friends because we didn't, we didn't get to hang out together that much. You know, we, we did get to have a couple of matches, a, a, a cage match one time on, on TV. And I got to win a battle royal that, uh, Punk was a part of. And, and so uh, I, I always enjoy working. I mean, you know, the guy's a great the guy's a great wrestler or worker, whatever you want to say on these on these podcasts. But, yeah, he was always fun to work with and as good as they come on the mic, as good as they come on the mic. And so, yeah, I, I never I never had any problems with with punk at all. It was always always good to work with him. Yeah, you guys had a fun mini feud going that was unfortunately stopped by you dying on TV. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, that was right. That, that was uh, my last match that I got to have in the WWE the night that I that I uh, died <laughs> was with Dolph Ziggler and CM Punk, me and Randy Orton against those two guys. And uh, but I don't blame Dolph at all. It was it was definitely I mean, I don't blame CM Punk. It was definitely Dolph with that heart stopping those uh, 10 elbows that did me in, I think. Uh, but, yeah, that was that was that was something that I always remember because that was the, the last match that I had on, on the WWE ring. All right. Here's one for the season. Brian Carpenter at B Carpenter 74 says, Hey, we know Brian Carpenter, of course. Behind your beloved A Christmas Story, what's your next best go-to Christmas movie? Oh, man. I've been watching a lot of them lately. I hate the, I hate the movies on Hallmark or Lifetime channel. That, you know, that, those aren't, those are like Christmas TV shows to me. They're not, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to say or be that critical of them that I wouldn't watch them or anything like that, but it's just like that's, they're just done to take advantage of the time of year that's Christmas. Uh, but I do love, um, oh, of course, Christmas Story is number one, without a doubt. And I, I love some of the old classics. 
but then I've also I also love some of the some of the new and newer ones uh, as well. But probably my second favorite is Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. I love the I love the um, the one scene especially in both the old one and the newer one. If you remember the the older version was when the uh, Ed I think what was his name Edwin Ed Gwynn or something like that. No, what was his name? The old movie then from the 30s, that Santa Claus, when he was sitting out there and the little girl was watching him from behind the kind of behind the curtain. And the mother brought up there's her daughter and she said she was like adopted, but she was German and she didn't speak any English. And she said, I tried to explain to her that, uh, you know, that you wouldn't be able to communicate with her. And but anyway, he sat the little girl on his lap. And all of a sudden that Santa started speaking to the little girl in German, you know, like he knew that he knew the German language and the, you could just see the look on the little girl's face and the look on uh, Natalie Wood's face, the other little girl, when all of a sudden, my gosh, Santa can speak these other languages, right? And then, then if you remember, then in the newer version, I think the 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 way they played that same scene off was a little a little child that was put on his lap that couldn't hear, and uh, so then all of a sudden Santa started doing sign language, and it was just uh, you know that was just the coolest a couple of the scenes out of that movie that I that I just really loved. So Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street would be my next favorite. Then after that, it's A Wonderful Life. Then some of the some of the later movies. I love, believe it or not, I love Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Oh, that's such that's a really funny movie. I like that. But I'm, I'm a sucker for any kind of Christmas movie. I just you know I I just love Christmas. Travis Clay at T Bird three four two four is asking about the Piper feud in Georgia and how you guys cut some promos building something up, but then it ended and there was never a match, uh, you know, until much later. Well, you know what? This is probably something that you would know more about than me or remember <laughs> more about than me. I don't remember exactly how that happened or what happened on that. I do know that. For some reason or other, okay, what what year would that have been that I was doing those promos? That was like 82. Okay, so that was before the, that was still the territory days. Yeah, you were on Georgia Championship Wrestling going down there and cutting promos on them. Then you had to go on Memphis TV because you were being a heel on Georgia TV, and you had to go on Memphis TV and explain that you weren't a heel because they got the national TV broadcast, and you said that this guy was a real jerk, and it was a whole complicated thing, and then the got dropped yeah and uh, honestly like i said you probably remember more about that than i do i do remember working with gordon Soley down there you know doing the interview and i do remember doing a couple of interviews it, but it, it doesn't seem like if my memory serves me correctly i think we just did interviews about each other i don't think he and i actually had any interaction in person during that during that time i don't think that roddy and i ever interacted in person until we got both got to the wwe yeah, that's the question. Why? Why no interaction when you're doing promos at each other? But uh, maybe we just we don't know. I, I don't know uh, unless unless it was the fact maybe that was was that right around the time that that Roddy would have gone to the WWE. I, I just yeah, I don't I think know. He went to the Carolinas after that. I, I could be wrong. I'm not sure. Well, that's. I'm sorry that we can't really answer the question. Somebody has to know the answer to that. Here's one that appeals to me very much. Another one of your greatest fans, Eddie Austin, at King Lawler fan. Hey, Eddie. <laughs> what is your all-time favorite Lance Russell memory? Oh, gosh. 
that I mean, you know, I would have to ask it. Would that be a? There's so many that I do. I don't know if I can say if there's my one all time. One time I got to do. They they let Lance and I go out to downtown Memphis at Court Square right in front of the old fountain down there. And they let me interview Lance. And so I, I got to sit and, and, and uh, do a real, like a shoot interview with Lance and him talking about how he got into the broadcast business and how he started out and uh, he started out doing, doing the wrestling and how he brought Dave Brown in as his, uh, as his co-host. And gosh, he just delved into his whole personal background with me. And that, that was a lot of fun. I think that interview actually is on YouTube somewhere. Uh, you can go back and look at that. It's really a, a, a cool thing. Just Jerry Lawler interviews Lance Russell. That was something that was a lot of fun. Another one was on, speaking of Christmas, was on a, one of our Christmas shows. Uh, and this was something that was kind of my idea. And I was surprised that Lance went along with it. We were we were trying to come up with some different skits for our Christmas show because we we couldn't have a, we couldn't do a live, uh, I don't know, Christmas, I don't know, Christmas, I believe was on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day was on Saturday morning. And we couldn't go in the studio and do a live show that day. So we got to, we got in the studio early and, uh, like on Wednesday or Thursday and we did some little vignettes and some skits and stuff. And we put together a show of, of Lance and I sitting in, uh, like a studio set there. We had a Christmas tree between us and we're both sitting in chairs. And I came, this was when I had Lawler's army going at the time. And I came in and I had my full army outfit on with my, my helmet and, uh, you know, the army coat and the canteen around my waist and all this kind of stuff. I had my full army outfit on. And, uh, so we're sitting there and we came up with this little skit idea where like Lance and Dave are saying, like Dave says to Lance, Lance, what would be your, favorite Christmas wish. And Lance goes, Oh man, it's just, and of course the scene is Lance and Dave sitting at the desk. And then it's like Lance saying, let me see. Oh, I think I know what it is. And then of course the screen went all blurry and then now we're, we're seeing what Lance is thinking. Right. And all of a sudden there I am standing there holding a microphone and I've got on this Baxter suit, the suit of like Lance Russell would wear with a tie and, and my hair combed back. And I've got on this, I've got a big fake nose on, the big banana nose is on, right? And I'm trying to hold the microphone and say, all right, Lawler, now listen up, listen, let me. And then and Lance had gone back in the dressing room and he put on, took off all his suit and clothes and everything, and he put on my wrestling gear, my strap, you know, the top with the strap on it and the wrestling boots and uh, the army helmet and and he's got a riding crop in his hand and so Lance is playing me and I'm playing Lance on this little vignette and and it was just that was one of my favorite memories of Lance doing um you know doing that little bit with me where he the tables were turned and it was me having to interview him and he's you know he's giving me grief uh dressed as dressed as me at Christmas time so that was favorite then man some of the other favorites with um Oh gosh, you know, Lance, Lance was such a, such a great entertainer. We always tried to have a tremendous amount of respect for our announcers, especially Dave Brown. It was pretty much because Dave was the, uh, uh, Dave was the, local weatherman on the on the station that we were on both on channel 13 and on channel 5 later on i mean you know he was the legit 
meteorologist. So he had to have a lot of credibility. So we couldn't do anything with Dave that would ever take away from the credibility that he would have on the, during the news broadcast. So Dave was pretty much a hands-off character. And Lance was in the sense that, you know, I just out of respect, we very seldom ever did anything physical uh, with Lance, never did anything physical with Dave, really. But just just out of respect for Lance, but on the very few occasions that something physical did happen to Lance, it was memorable because it was so, you know, it was so rare that something like that happened. One of my favorite memories was one time Dream Machine. Dream Machine just snapped uh, on an interview. The reason I loved it so much is because I think it was about 99% real in the fact that he went out screaming. He was mad at me. Dream Machine went out screaming at Lance Russell and he grabbed Lance Russell by the, you know, by his collar. He just grabbed him up and shook, got right in his face and was shaking Lance and then put Lance down onto the floor and he's down screaming in his face. And Jimmy Hart comes out like panicking and he's like, Oh my God, don't dream. Don't touch the Lance, Lance Russell. Let him up. Let him up. I, I think that that to me was great because Lance was either legitimately taken aback or scared or, or intimidated or whatever, or either he was that great of an actor that it just it was just so real. I'll never forget that moment with Lance and Dream Machine. Then another great moment was when Tojo Yamamoto got the same reaction out of Lance. Tojo had come out and with a like a I don't know, a kendo stick or he was threatening Lance. I think we had already we had poured yellow paint on Tojo and he was he was riled up and he came out threatening Lance and Lance grabbed the he used to have a real hammer, just a big hammer that he would hit the ring bell with every week. And the hammer was right there on the Lance's table and Lance grabbed that hammer and it was just like the most realistic interview I've ever heard. And he was telling Tojo, he held that hammer up and he said, let me tell you something, Tojo. He said, I may not get but one lick in, but I promise you, if I do, I'm going to hit you. I don't know how he said it, but I will hit you right between the eyes with this hammer as hard as I can. And it was just, it was just a great interview. It was so, so heartfelt. It was just a great thing with Lance. And then the other one that I can never forget is Lance being in the middle of the greatest non-fight that I've ever seen on wrestling. With, with Jimmy Hart and Andy Kaufman and those two guys swinging and, and they look like two, two girls out there having a cat fight. These two guys swinging at each other with all they had and Lance in between them and neither one of them ever landed a blow except maybe on Lance or something like that. But that Lance kind of, uh, being the, the, the mediator, the referee between that fight between Jimmy Hart and Andy Kaufman. Those are, those are some of my, some of my greatest memories of Lance, but I mean, so many guys, he was, he was every single week for 30 plus years on that wrestling show. So you can imagine how many great things happen with Lance Russell. Everybody listening, go look up that Christmas clip. Cause I think that's on YouTube and that's the funniest thing ever is Lance wearing your military outfit, uh, just yelling at you. Don't give me any grief lawler. And it is great. Here's a random question from Tony Faulkner at T O N F A U 63. King, did you do some refereeing before you started wrestling? He thinks he remembers seeing you in Florence, Alabama. Yes, I did. I absolutely did. That was that was one of the great things. That, uh, when 
when Jackie Fargo, like he's, he stuck his neck out and he told, told Nick Goulas at the time, come on, book this kid, see what you can do with him. And so they don't, they didn't realize that to me, the greatest thing in the world at that time was getting to be a job guy, getting to be an enhancement talent, as they call it now, getting beat up by the main stars on Saturday morning wrestling, I thought that was just as good. I mean, to me, that was, you're on TV, you're a TV wrestler. I, I didn't care about who won or who lost. I just thought that was great to be on there. So I was excited being those kind of, being one of those guys. But those guys, they only got used on TV. You know, they weren't, they, they didn't get to go around and make the main town. So all uh, for a while, I was just Saturday morning wrestling. I was tickled to death with that, but you can't make a living doing that. So another promoter, guy that promoted uh, a lot of Nick's uh, spot shows and things around the Memphis area was Buddy Wayne. Dwayne Peel was his real name, but he wrestled as Buddy Wayne. And Buddy would run uh, a lot of spot shows everywhere. And so then uh, Buddy, Buddy liked me as well. And Buddy started using me just to, to, you know, to give me some work. He started using me as a referee in some of his towns that he would book. And, um, I mean, this was literally the first few months of me being in the business. And I was so excited for, I can't tell you how long, well, I can't tell you actually with one of the matches that we had in Florence, but that's how long it took for the first few months. I was so excited and so I just couldn't believe that I was actually in a wrestling ring or in the business. And it was like one of those deals. I've said a bunch of times on commentary, you're going to have to have his smile surgically removed. Well, that's, that's what I thought was going to have to happen to me. I, as soon as I would get in the ring, I just, I guess it was maybe a nervous smile or whatever, but I just, I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I was just like smiling all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes somebody would say something to me after the match or something like that. And they said, come on, man. Anyway, I was refereeing a match in Florence, Alabama, and Big Don and Al Green were were in this match. And I think they were going against Ken Lucas and Dennis Hall. And I step in between them, and I'm standing there with this big smile on my face. And I said, all right, guys, there no no hair pulling, no punching, no kicking, no eye gouging. We want to have a clean fight here. And, and all of a sudden, big old Don Green, with the most serious, mean look on his face, he said, if you don't wipe that freaking smile off your face, I'm going to slap it off of you. And my smile went away then, and it stayed with us. That was the last time I remember smiling during a match. But, yeah, I was I, I got to referee quite a bit uh, during, the, during the first few months that I was uh, got in the business in Tennessee. Then after that, I got sent down to uh, – uh, Buddy, Buddy used me quite a bit up around Memphis there. Then I got sent down to the – at that time, the – what was, um, I guess, their – developmental territory, which was down in Mobile, Alabama, not Mobile. No, I'm sorry. Down in Montgomery, Alabama, we would, uh, then I got to start wrestling and I, I, um, Oh gosh, we had, we had a wrestling in a little town every single night. And that was just where guys would, you know, like myself, they were putting guys out there. And that's where I first met Plowboy Frazier. And that's where I met Sam Bass and Jim White. All these guys were in this little developmental territory where you'd wrestle in, um, gosh, Montgomery, Tuscaloosa, Anniston, Alabama, Gadsden, Alabama, all of these little towns in, in Alabama so that you could, you know, these weren't, they didn't draw big crowds, but you would actually, you'd be getting experience. You'd be wrestling in front of a live crowd every night. And, and that's what I did and went down there for 
several months before I got called up. Me and Sam Bass and Jim White got called up to uh, back up to the Memphis Territory. We'll have to do this again because we have so many more questions left. But why don't we do one last one here? I'll give you an impossible one. At Roxy, so Foxy, B.A.B., uh, aside from Kaufman, what was your favorite rivalry? Oh, aside from Kaufman? Wow. That's you're right. That is impossible. That's that's like going back. I, I would have to say if you're talk about the oh man, the the history of the rivalries. If we were talking about Memphis, it would have to be my rivalry with Jimmy Hart and all the stuff that came out of out of that, but the rivalry with Jimmy Hart, followed closely by the rivalry with Bill Dundee. Uh, and then if you talk about once we went on up into the WWE, I guess probably without a doubt for the rivalry with Brett the Hitman Hart up there was was my favorite. But man, you know that's that's like asking me, and I do get this question asked me all the time: Who's your favorite guy to wrestle ever? And uh, we'll, we'll we could do a whole podcast on that sometime. But yeah, I guess I would say other than Andy, Jimmy Hart, and then Bill Dundee, and then Brett the Hitman Hart. Well, this is our last show before Christmas, so uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to do this again. We have many questions that we didn't get to, and I think this was a fun way to pick your brain. This was good stuff here. <laughs> yeah, we did get off. Uh, I'll go off on a couple tangents here and there, but we'll try to do better next time. But, yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays, everybody. And, uh, yeah, I, and I, I do always say Merry Christmas. And I got to tell you that we did so many Christmas jokes on the show that's coming up Christmas week that afterwards – the only thing that Paul Heyman came up to said to was to me was after the show was you couldn't have one Hanukkah line in there. <laughs> <laughs> so happy Hanukkah out there, everyone as well. All happy right. Hanukkah as well. Thanks everybody. We'll be back next week. holidays from your friends at podcast one hi everyone it's becca from the lady gang we wanted to say thank you to all our advertisers for their support this year we couldn't do it without you have a very happy holiday season hey this is adam carolla i want to thank you for listening this year and have a happy and safe holiday hi it's barbara boxer wishing you a happy new year and this is nicole yeah and we're wishing you a happy holidays hey everyone it's sheena shay from shenanigans just wishing you all happy holidays and a very happy new year hey guys it's Nas and Nadia from Ladies, Ladies like, like Us. We want to wish our listeners a very happy holiday and say thank you to all our advertisers who support our show. We could not do it without you. Happy holidays. Hey, it's Heather and Terry Dubrow. Hello. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. Chuck, I know you love being Santa. No, I am Santa. Yeah. All day, every day. Happy, Happy holidays, holidays from adulting, adulting like a mother father. Hey everyone, it's Caitlin Bristow from Off the Vine Podcast wishing you a very happy holiday season and thank you for all of your support this year. Tis the season of giving! And we know you're looking for gifts for your family and friends right now. So check out our amazing sponsors who bring you showmance every week for free. Give us your ears and they'll give you awesome deals. And we will give you more of the content you love. Hey, it's Heidi Pratt. I just want to thank all of our amazing sponsors for making this show possible and every that they do so we can have this free podcast for you guys every week so thank you so much to all of our awesome sponsors we love you and we really love all your products so thank you hey everybody steve austin here and i want to wish you a very happy holiday season and a happy new year and that's the bottom line 